every human has a right to do things, but humans are not equal in a sense of their achievement. I mean, mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson's idea of an aristocracy of achievement arising out of a democracy of opportunity is really what a school is about. Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. And greetings, my friends and fellow Damons, and thank you for joining me once again for another episode of Damonosophy 2.0. For this episode, I'm super excited to tell you that my guest is Don Webb. And if you don't know, Don Webb is probably one of the foremost authorities on the left-hand path living today. I'm honored and, and happy to say that I have known Don for a while. I met him uh, early 90s and was just always very fascinated uh, by his work and his thoughts and his ideas and the very unique brand of magic that he weaves into the universe. So we talked about a lot of things in this conversation. Uh, We covered a lot of ground. But one of the things that we talked about is his new book that just came out. And it's called Set. And it's uh, co-authored by Don and Judith Page. And... It's, it's really a fabulous offering, I have to say. Um, of course, all of the information in it, which is a lot of very um, uh, insightful and scholarly work on the Egyptian god Set and his various uh, forms and manifestations and various functions and why a lot of people look to the uh, god Set as being a uh, forerunner of left-hand path ideas, why uh, Set is looked to as a symbol of isolate intelligence and individuality and sovereignty and all these other things that we hold dear on the left-hand path. But, I mean, this book, it's, it's, it's uh, got a nice red and, and gold colors. It's just beautiful. It's, it's thick. It's like got really wonderful illustrations in here uh, from Judith Page, and it's just a wonderful piece. So we're going to talk about it a little bit, but I do want you to make a note that afterwards you should go onto Amazon.com and look it up and get it. So, um, without further ado then, I will here present to you the Don Webb interview. Hi, thank you so much for um, doing the interview uh, with us here today. I'm so excited that you're on. You've helped so many people find the left-hand path with your books like uh, Mysteries of the Temple of Set, Uncle Setnock's Essential Guide. How did you find the left-hand path? Well, the way I found the left-hand path was some years ago. uh, First off, to explain things, I am a writer of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Um, 
some years ago, I believe it would be 1988, um, I was invited to write for an anthology of stories that was going to be set around the Salem Witch Trials, a subject that I knew nothing about. So I researched the Salem Witch Trials one evening and made a little chart of myself showing the progression of the witch trials, the nature of the accusations, the nature of evidence, the public outcry. And once I'd made my chart, I said, okay, I have a good timeline on this. I was tired, decided I'm going to watch some TV, turned on the television, and there was the Geraldo Rivera special, Satanism in America. And it was completely overblown, hyperbolic. And with my little chart sitting in front of me, I started checking off things. Oh, yeah, spectral evidence. Oh, yeah, this, you know, uh, desire to connect this with vague things happening with children somewhere. Um, and after a while, I'd really checked every single aspect of what I'd noticed to be parts of the Salem Witch Trials. Um, the people speaking on behalf of the satanic, as it were, uh, were uh, Zena, Antonio Bay's daughter, and a guy that I'd never heard of before uh, named Michael Aquino. And at one point, one investigator, a guy named Tom Wedge, said, Geraldo, you won't believe the amount of blood these people use in their rituals. <laughs> Just buckets and buckets of blood. But they're going to have their comeuppance. I have the address of every Satanist in America. At which point, the Aquino guy said, well, why don't you arrest them? You know, the logical, simple statement. Mm -hmm. And I could hear Geraldo turn off his mic. I heard it click off. And I thought, that's the only intelligent statement in this entire um, little fantasy. And I was really impressed. Wow, that's, I wasn't really kind of expecting intelligent remarks from the satanic side. You know, I mean, like everyone else, I'd read the satanic Bible when I was a teenager, and I was expecting there to be kind of corny, vaguely threatening, vaguely spooky remarks. Next night, I was at my fantasy role-playing group's game, Yes, D&D does lead to this. And I commented to people there, I said, you know, I really wish I knew how to write a fan letter to that Aquino guy. That was, she was such an intelligent remark, and I love the look on Geraldo's face. One woman in the group gave me this really serious look. I thought she was very disapproving, in fact. I thought, oh, no, I've offended her in some way. As we were walking out to our cars, she walked up to me and said, do you really want to write a letter to Dr. Aquino? And I noticed she called him Dr. Quino, which is not what uh, Geraldo had called him. And I said, yeah, sure. He, says, he said, well, I'm seeing him next week at the International Conclave of the Temple of Set. I could take the letter to him. I was astounded because I knew this woman. I knew her, I knew her husband. They were normal people. They had a nice home. They had real jobs. They weren't covered in strange tattoos. They didn't in any way smell uh, that kind of craziness that Colt Nick smell, smell of. So I wrote a letter, gave it to her, decided to show off because, you know, I'm a very ego-weak person, so I wrote, you know, how much I'd always been interested in the God set and, you know, amateur Egyptology was a passion, blah, blah, blah. And finished the letter with the remark, but what I don't understand about your philosophy is how can a group help one become a better individual? There seems to be a paradox. Sent it off. A couple of weeks later, she returns to Austin. She hands me the letter in response from Dr. Quino. Very nice letter, 
He told some chatty stories about the Geraldo show. And then in a PS just said, yeah, the whole individuality versus the group thing. We still haven't figured it out. Maybe you should join and explain it to us. <laughs> and uh, I didn't take that actually as a serious remark. But I then began to research what little material was available about the Temple of Saturn. There was some scandal stuff in tabloids that was fairly easily seen as, as not for real. Um, there was a, one reference in Neville Drury's The Occult Experience, and there was a fairly dreadful book by Jenny Scott Graham called The Magicians. I read everything I could. I began to talk to people who were local members, and I thought, you know, this would be a great thing on my resume as a horror writer, that I could <laughs> say I was a member of the sinister cult. I joined. I read the Crystal Tablet, uh, particularly the essay called uh, Black Magic in Theory and Practice, and thought this is the cleanest, clearest, most rational explanation of both self-development on the one hand and humans' paranormal side on the other that I've ever seen. And after that, threw myself into the temple. Um, I wrote, did magic, corresponded, attended gatherings, and seven years later, I was their next high priest. I found the philosophy to be easy to use. I found that it had depth, clarity, provided energy. And I decided that the view in the temple at the time, which was we don't share our stuff with the outside, was the wrong view. I didn't think there would be as many problems as we had had during the satanic panic if people could actually go and read rational accounts of what we do, simple examples of exercises people could try. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I began with Uncle Setnock's Essential Guide to the Left-Hand Path. And since then, I guess it's been about six or seven books that um, I've produced, mainly because I've got a really good response, and it's had the odd effect now that I think if you talk to most members of the temple, their gateway into our philosophy was one of my books. So mm -hmm. I think my idea was correct about having some form of reach out. Absolutely, I think it was correct. And uh, so a couple of things in all of that. First of all, I'll say the Geraldo exposing Satan's underground. That's like one of the first things that I saw um, back in the day on, on, on TV when it first aired, and it really blew my mind. The other thing that is uh, really fascinating to me is uh, role-playing games. You confirmed that, yes, Dungeons & Dragons does lead to Satanism, and uh, I know a lot of people have been wondering about that. And, and the other thing is that question of how can a group help? And, you know, on a very, very simple level, I could see, well, a group helps because you meet other people that have other ideas and resources or people who've gone before in the same way, say, a school has. So... For you now, coming back to that, do you have a sense? What is your idea about how a group can help? Well, there's, there's um, two ways that a group helps. The first way, it puts you in contact with real people involved in a real struggle. You know, the temple is not set up, so there's some you know, guru off in San Francisco or London or wherever that you never actually meet. You meet real people who do real things like try to make an honest buck have a job, deal with getting care for their parents or care for their kids, um, deal with real medical issues, and yet they seek initiation 
to aid in these things, to enhance these experiences, to make these experiences more thought-provoking. Mm-hmm. On a more esoteric level, a group can help a magician, someone just learning to practice the art of magic, it can awaken some of their facilities. Um, the, simple pre- the simple process of attending a ritual working makes people aware of that there are things about the human that aren't easily defined. Now, none of them are what you might be expecting from, say, the movies. I've yet to go to a temple working where someone has levitated or someone's appeared with a goat's head. But what you can sense is you can sense aspects of the human being that are marvelous. Mm -hmm. And then if you can put those two things together, the magical current and real people working out real problems in a philosophical bent, then you have a school. And schools aren't for everybody. You know, the first thing about school is, well, schools can be tough. The nice thing about schools is you can see ideas that are played out in so many different ways. Um, The temple has a really odd demographic in that it has people of extreme wealth, and it's got people that are struggling to get by. It has people with PhDs, who are a little PhD-heavy, but has people that are very academic. It has people that just got their GED and went off and made their home business. And yet all of these people are able to say, there's aspects of self-development that not only are important to me, but I want to share them with you because I want to be around people who are similarly empowered. Nobody wants to be on the top of the heap by themselves. Mm-hmm. But there is this idea that a group of adventurers, as it were, wishes to enhance each other's experience. Um, and there's that such a great, great truth that it comes from people who manifest their work individually. They don't look alike. They don't eat alike. They don't have the same sexual preferences. They don't all get to a convention and chant in unison. Mm-hmm. It's a really wonderful thing. I think that's actually also a really American idea. You know, I think the, the kind of America that put us on the moon, I think, did have an essentially left-hand path core. Oh, yeah. I think it's the essence of the idea of the free market that in a left-hand path, we have essentially, it's a, it's a free market of uh, spiritual becoming in one sense. Well, and there's this whole idea also that the, the, the human paradox of every human has a right to do things, but humans are not equal in a sense of their achievement. I mean, mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson's idea of an aristocracy of achievement arising out of a democracy of opportunity is really what a school is about. I mean, there's nothing in the temple that is, forbidden or hidden or locked away. In fact, the most important document in the entire temple is the crystal tablet, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that we hand people when they come in the door. You know, and everything after that is just kind of an enhancement. Mm-hmm. The secrets are the secrets you find out about yourself or how you relate to the cosmos, but they're not handed to you. And that's actually a very exciting thing for real adults wanting to make real change. And that way we're different than most sort of occultic groups that dispense secret lore or have a path of rituals that you must master in order to move through the ranks. Um, Sedians just say, here's the technology, here's the philosophy, what do you want to do with it? No, I agree. 
even um, Anton LaVey had a very patriotic vibe in there somewhere, as we know, evidenced by his inclusion of the Stars and Stripes Forever at the end of the Satanic Mass LP. But here's my question. Why is it, it seems so congruent, fundamental left-hand path ideas seem so congruent with um, Americanism. Why is it still such a minority? Well, for one thing, um, America has, uh, unfortunately, the the curse of um, sometimes intolerant religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a lot of Americans, um, they don't want to, to make the, the leap of saying, hey, I like the idea of a free market. Maybe I should have a spiritual free market. Instead, they look more for a system that is in some ways you know, a collectivist system. Mm-hmm. The right-hand path is, is collectivist. It's like, I want to mm-hmm. be part of this greater whole. Well, mm-hmm. every human has a certain amount of that in their nature. The big question is, at your biggest, deepest heart place, are you wanting to merge with something, or do you want to be yourself just better? Mm-hmm. Um, I was speaking a few years ago to a follower of the Indian left-hand path, and he made this beautiful statement. Now, this is quoted a great deal, so it's not unique to him. He said, in the right-hand path, you become sugar, and at the end of your life, that sugar is dissolved in the water, and you've made this lake a little more sweet. He mm-hmm. said, in the left-hand path, we want to taste the water. Mm. You know, and, and just when he said that, I was like, okay, that's, that is just kind of amazingly clear. Um, and for most people, that, that may not be what they want. Um, it's reassuring to assume that there's a bigger mass that's going to take care of you in some ways. Uh, it just comes down, I think, to chemistry more than anything else. Now, it just so happened that the founders of this country, um, largely because they had lots of self-reliance, and they were helped out by some of the ideas in Freemasonry at the time, had this idea of an association of volunteers as opposed to um, a commonwealth under a king. Mm-hmm. It's a rare moment in history. Mankind is always having illuminated moments. I mean, man, the, you know, the Renaissance can be tracked down to really about eight people in Italy that decided it would be a cool idea. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's just have civilization again. What do you think? Oh, mm-hmm. hey, we could do that. I like the art. I got some money. Let's translate some of those old texts for us. Um, but the problem with history it's just as the moment of enlightenment appears, it also fades away. The reason you need a school is to remind yourself, hey, this is an important enough idea. I need to see this outside myself. I need to see this in some way that's objective that I see in the context of other human beings. I'm sure there have always been people who achieve a certain degree of magical or spiritual development, but... The world works really hard to make you forget those things. There's a constant force in the world uh, to make people stupid. Um, I think the only real battle, in fact, is largely between the forces of intelligence and the forces of stupidity. So, so what is that force in the world that battles against intelligence, that battles against consciousness? I think it's the force that says, I am interested in mass animal survival. I want the herd to do well. Now, oddly enough, if you can make the right 
deal with the herd, you can say, hey, I'm going to go over here and be an individual, but I'm going to give you benefit from my work. That's always a deal that can be worked out, whether you're a creative person or whether you're a philosopher, magician, whatever. I'm going to throw my music out at the world. All right, most of the people that are taking that music in may not have what I have philosophically, but I've had an exchange with them. I think the, the idea of the force of ignorance is probably there because it has to be. I think it's a cosmological necessity. You know, if I go down to the gym and work out, I'm not going to get very far unless I put some counterweights against what I'm lifting. So even the mind needs counterweights. Now, in different mythologies, that's approached in different ways. For the Egyptians, the counterweight to the mind was a being called Apophis, the being of non-existence. Every night, Set helps Ray in his boat about 4.30 in the morning beat this huge, huge creature that's the being of non-existence. Now, I think on a metaphorical scale, anytime you've been up at 4 in the morning and all of those worries you have, will I be able to pay my bills? Is my health okay? Is this relationship okay? All this non-existence, you have to cut through it in order to remain sharp. Mm-hmm. In this, I think that we are most like set. It's fighting this force that is essentially a lie. Different mythologies um, deal with this in different ways. We have a mutual friend, I know, that's working a great deal with, the, with Mazdaism. In mm-hmm. Mazdaism, which is not a right-hand path or a left-hand path faith, it's a faith where the ideal, the wise Lord, is constantly fighting against the lie. The lie is everything that tells you that you're mortal, that you're bad, that you're incapable. It all depends on whatever the cultural matrix is at the time. Back in 1966, when Anton LaVey founded the Church of Satan, Satan was a perfect symbol for something that thumbs its nose at the world that tells you you're dependent. Satan is basically this figure that says, nope, you've got to fight for it. Yeah. And... Here's the real secret. It's not as hard as you think. This thing you're fighting is not big or real or particularly well organized. Right. And so to me, and this, this whole concept of the lie, and, uh, and I'm thinking specifically of the time when we heard our mutual friend articulating this, corresponds with the idea of, uh, of, of coercion. There's always a sense of coercion with it. So, um, and to me, that, that's very much the, the spirit of, um, of, of collectivism. That's what makes collectivism different than, um, say, cooperation. You know, like, like you're saying, I can put my music, I, I can make music and put it out in the world, and I can write stuff, and I can share it with people, and I can go to a school, and I can co-op, you know, get ideas from people and have exchanges. But I'm doing all of this, like, freely, you know, mm-hmm. voluntarily engaging in, in all of this exchange. But then there's this force in the universe that is uh, coercive. And to me, that's like, when we start getting into the, that, that's the distinction between just a group of people and say collectivism. Because if it's a group of people and they're all there voluntarily, anyone can walk away at any minute, it's a different thing. Oh, no, you know, human beings um, like to be, be coercive. And what you always have to, to ask is who's benefiting from this coercion? You know, what force, what person, what institution benefits from this? Yeah. Uh, but then even on a, on a spiritual way, you know, the left-hand path makes this assumption that in your nature you are already immortal, but that what you need is to have those experiences 
that makes that immortality potent and aware. That's a really different mythology than saying, well, some god is going to grant you immortality, maybe yes, maybe no, depending yeah. on your deed. Or, even worse, this idea that you cannot be saved, save through the machinations of this other creature. Um, it's also a lot to do with optimism. It's a way mm-hmm. to approach you know, that big question, and the biggest question for humans will always be death. You know, it has to be a mysterious question, or we would not derive the substance we need in ourselves for our lives. Of course, people want to have that way of, well, this is all going to be cared for for me. Well, no, it's not. And even if it was, wouldn't you like a death that you can do more things by yourself? Mm-hmm. There's a vast and interesting universe out there, and I would like to think. And, of course, this may be my delusion, but it's the delusion I choose to have. I would like to think that when my fleshly life is over, everything I've done to expand my mind, my capacity to feel with my heart, my capacity to imagine things, my capacity to think well, is actually a rocket fuel letting me deal with the universe. Now, if it turns out that I'm wrong, this was still the noble fight to have. This is still what I would want to be, say, well, this is what I tried, as opposed to just assuming some vague force is going to take care of things for me if I just say the right prayers and give the right amount of money to the right institutions. That's a very sad thing to assume. Mm -hmm. I want the vitality of my life here to be the basis for a future vitality. In that, I want to see my life as seamless from what's going on now to what may be going on, as the Egyptians would say, millions of years from now. All right, so you're getting into some heavy shit now. So, and this is a, I got to ask you a question. This is a question that I've asked all of the, I, I try to ask all of the lords of the left-hand path that I have on the show. Can Satanism be atheism? Because there's a lot of that out there. And, and beyond even Satanism, we can put it in a left-hand path context. I know there's people in the Luciferian uh, scene who say, well, you can be atheist or you cannot be atheist. It's an option. What is your take on, on the, 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 the place and function of atheism? Um, atheism is probably a very sane response to the world if, in fact, the only way you can conceive of God is Judeo-Christian God. If, in fact, the only way I could conceive of God was a highly arbitrary power that's interested in ethnic laws that gets pissed off all the time, no. Totally coercive, totally coercive, yeah. Totally that, I would reject that. Now, if on the other hand, if I am to say my experiences of the divine are wrong, then I can't actually trust what I have learned as a magician. Now, these are subjective experiences. I have done things that make me aware of greater life in the universe. Now, I've not become aware of any greater life in the universe that wants my worship. I have never encountered some being that says, well, now that you're here, could you kneel on this rug for me? (laughs) I am aware of entities like myself with a similar quest. Therefore, I reject atheism on the basis of experience. However, since it's subjective experience, I can't go and preach what I say. I can't go and say on the corner of the road, you should all try this. It will save you. What I can say is, here's some stuff I did. If you get results, here's some more things you can try. So, I mean, the, the atheist conceit is maybe saner, 
than common religious views, but it's not a conceit that ultimately can be used to model your self-improvement on unless your self-improvement is just simple human power and hedonism. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for more than that, then you need to figure out what the divine is. Now, that's a tough one. It's very hard in the left-hand path. Because, you know, first, when we have this sort of knee-jerk reaction, well, I don't like the God of light, so my God's the God of darkness. Your God shows a crucifix standing up, I'm going to show a crucifix standing down. But that's just play. That's the level of, like a child playing with something, saying, oh, would this work differently? The real divine, when you encounter it, is both humbling and very exciting. Now, I didn't encounter the divine early in my career in the Temple of Set. I didn't do workings and say, oh, look, there's Set over there. I sense him. In fact, I had my, as they say, Set experience almost as I was entering the realm of the master of the temple. And then I said, ah, I can trust this experience because I have disciplined my mind. I can trust this experience because I have ways to check out what's being communicated with me. But I also know that having come to this place where this door opens, I cannot turn my back on the door. I can't flee from this. Now, it is very trendy in the current Church of Satan to be atheistic. Uh, Magus Gilmore is essentially, as best I can tell from his writings, an atheist. If you look at the private writings of Anton, some of the things that were shared with Dr. Quino, it's really clear that Anton is aware of another being, but he mm-hmm. treated that as almost like a house secret. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, this is something we know about this, and, you know, and we don't be approved somehow. That's enough. We can move mm-hmm. on. Um, but no, I don't think that the atheist is a follower of the left-hand path. Um, had that being said, I think the atheist is trying something that's brave and can produce some really interesting art about it sometimes. Uh, I, I um, agree. And even in uh, Anton's Satanic Bible, there's a, a section in there where he criticizes uh, Christian atheism uh, and talks about what a contradiction this is. And you know, I, I, I feel that all of the logic that he applies there could apply to the idea of uh, sadism and atheism. So there's some sort of like contradiction in there. At the very least, I feel it doesn't really add value to the concept to say that, not to mention I don't think most atheists would agree with it either. No, no, you're totally right. And I think the thing that's remarkable about Anton, I know some people, you know, there's some people that are, that are totally devoted fans and some people think he's just you know, a ridiculous carny. Here's what I always find most interesting. He didn't recant. Now, he mm-hmm. claimed his big interest in life was money and power. Well, my Lord, you know, what if in about 77, 78, he called up, you know, Pat Robinson and said, I'm going to come on your show and become an evangelist. He would mm-hmm. have made more money yeah. than he could have jumped over. Just instantly that door would be open. But yeah. he did. He chose what he chose. But yeah. On some level, he recognized a truth there, uh, although I think he had a hard time admitting to that, given the rest mm-hmm. of his rhetoric. But I don't know. Maybe I'll ask him someday. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's fascinating. That's true, and I hadn't considered that before. But that's a, a great way to make money. If you're a Satanist or left-hand path person, spend a few years worshiping the devil, and then you go to a televangelist ministry and you recant, 
and they will make you a star. They'll make make you the star right away. They'll put you right up on stage. You know. Oh no, yeah, we could we could we could be sitting next to Pat Robertson next week if we wanted to. Yeah. Oh, that would be his <laughs> own punishment, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, so let's talk about let's talk about the book set. Okay. That you co- co-authored with Judith Page. How did it come into being? This is a, I think this is the first thing first piece of yours that I'm aware of that you did a a co-authorship with. Well, Judith uh, was, a, was a member of the Temple set years ago, and, and she and I had stayed in correspondence um, for decades. She was working on a book that was originally going to be called The Inner Guide to Set. Uh, there's a wonderful piece of English neo-paganism called The Inner Guide to Egypt. I would highly recommend it. It's really a very thoughtful way of dealing with the mythology and the magic. It's not fluffy, bunny, badly researched things. For various reasons, that book had not come into being. She contacted me and said, would you like to write an introduction to my book? And I said, well, you know, I need to see what the book is. And I looked at the book, and it occurred to me that her experiences with the Netcher set, I saw as spiritually authentic, although they weren't written in the grammar, or they were written in the jargon of the Temple of Set. And I'm aware of there being so many people that do have some relationship with Set, I decided that it might be interesting to write my religious book. My other books have all been technical books for the left-hand path, how to improve yourself, how to develop certain skills, or left-hand path critiques, such as my book on Aleister Crowley, when I said, well, let's look at his material from a left-hand path perspective. Here I looked at this God, which has certainly become manifest to mankind um, fairly significantly the last 150 years or so. Keeps showing up in all these really different places. And I wanted to comment on how can you approach that spiritually without making it another conventional religion. I mean, the last thing I want would be people running down to their church, sawing off the steeple, and putting a charm scepter up. <laughs> but I did want to say people are having this experience. I noticed this some years ago. There was a wonderful website called Set Fighting. I even met the, one of the women that ran it. don't know why it's no longer around, where she started just collecting set and art. Of course, originally you start with some very ancient figures, but she says, hey, this is showing up in anime, and this is showing up in paintings, and this is showing up you know, in um, various games, and suddenly just out of nowhere, there's this a vast amount of study and material. And I looked at that and thought, that's really unusual. I have to think there is some connection between this outward manifestation and the inward reality. So my part of Set the Outsider was talking about how you make that connection. Uh, as such, we opened the book up to some other people as well. There's an Egypt, there's a, um, there's a scholar that did a work on griffins in ancient Egypt, talked about the Setian form of the griffin, which largely entered our own society as the gargoyle. I mean, when you see a gargoyle on a medieval church, I can trace that in our history in a clear and easy way back to that figure. Uh, another piece was written by an um, astronomer who has actually uh, written some pieces for archaeo-astronomical journals as opposed to just occultism about Set and his stellar presence. Set is a figure that rules the night sky. 
And I thought it was time, as did Judith, to throw this out in the world. I think that there is a need. In many ways, this is my, um, a compliment to my other books. It is not as much of an initiatory text as it is a text of, let's see what we can say about this nature. Let's see what we can say about him historically, philosophically, and then here are some very basic, simple exercises you can try where you can interact with, you know, as to use a horrible cult phrase, with the Setian current. Uh, the book received um, really much more enthusiastic response than either of us were expecting. We, we actually thought that would go out and, you know, that our friends would buy it and that would be about it. And, and in fact, is one of the best-selling things either she or I have done. So apparently, there is some sense in the world of the presence of that no longer so hidden God set. No, I think so. Um, well, first of all, I think it's an excellent-looking book. I mean, it just looks fabulous when you get it. It's just like the, the artwork and, and uh, the layout. The uh, other thing is that you're right. There's so much going on right now out there with different artists that are taking not just the imagery but, but the ideas. And so I think, I think there's a, a current going on with this. And um, I think that your book is like, you know, right on spot with it. Well, yeah, I was, I was, again, I was surprised. I was surprised that there was um, a certain degree of popularity. Of course, I mean popular for my books. It's nothing compared to, you know, a Llewellyn mass market occult book, which will outsell this by a thousand times. But in fact, that there were people, and some people have, have picked up this book, have written to Judith and I and have said, you know, well, I've really looked for this for years. You know, I, I once had an experience like this, and this contextualizes it for me. And that was actually what we set out to do, although um, surprised at the, the level of need for it. Just to dig into it a little bit, there's a passage where you say, and uh, this is in reference, I think, to this is in reference to the ancient Egyptians. You say that their religion was occulted by the need for a strong central government instead of a council of chieftains who could be well represented by the starry sky, a strong central figure who could be equated with the sun worked better. Um, so. I, you know, I thought of this earlier when we were talking about the, um, you, you were talking about the founding of America and the founding fathers and the sort of system that like arose out of that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Is that, is that an idea that you feel like, is the, does that come from uh, pre-dynastic Egypt? Um, it, it also seems similar. Yeah, early in pre-dynastic Egypt, the, the Sets sites tended to be very southern. Um, the best one probably being a site called Nequata. Nequata developed a lot of what we would think of as Egyptian civilization. They developed hieroglyphs, for example. Uh, the people at Nequata uh, survived by doing cooperative irrigation works because the whole secret to Egypt, particularly um, the south of Egypt, is moving that Nile water around because as Egypt is becoming drier and drier, uh, water is life. Mm -hmm. Now, when Egypt was making that change from pre-dynastic to dynastic Egypt, there were still grasslands that could be seen. It wasn't a matter of you could look out and see the desert, but you begin to see the desert coming. However, one of the earliest pharaohs, Narmer, uh, associated with a different political group calling themselves the followers of Horus. Followers of Horus instituted uh, the pharaoh, the Egyptian god-king. And the first dynasty was the followers of Horus. At the end of the first dynasty, there was significant flooding. 
And the only people that knew how to deal with the floods were the Southerners. They had the technology. So in the Second Dynasty, the last of the people who originally called themselves the Friends of Set was mm-hmm. a guy named Per Ibsen, who called himself the Living Set. And for the beginning of the Second Dynasty, there were Setian pharaohs. However, frankly, the central government, the Horian path, just works a lot more efficiently. They're really good at telling people what to do and organizing you know, big works like, hey, let's put everybody building a pyramid during the flood season. So there was only one sort of experiment with Setian government, which tended to be, we, t- we think, I mean, this is a good guess, tended to be more organized by tribal elders. Now, what's odd about this is that when Horus, the Horians come to power, Set is slowly sort of eased out of the pantheon. Initially, Horus and Set, very equal. But almost a thousand years later, at a time of tremendous um, political crises, Setian culture reappears. You know, it had been driven back into the oases, comes out again about the beginning of the imperial time, and once again expands. However, this seems to be a hard idea to hold on to. Uh, but yet, I always think it's interesting to look at ideas that people try to erase, try really hard to rub out of the historical record for even centuries, and yet, when the need is there, comes out again, immediately pours back into the world. So why do you think it experienced that outpouring during that imperial sort of opportunity? Do you think there's a, a cause, an underlying cause well, for that? For one thing... Um, Egypt faced some really serious rivalry in terms of the Hittite Empire. Egypt always had a tremendous thing in the uh, Bronze Age because it's got a desert on both sides of it. It's hard for troops to march in and take it over. However, the Hittites, the good chariot makers, man, they were a real threat. Uh, And Set was a better god to deal with this in that he respects foreign lands as opposed to most Egyptian gods who hate foreigners. He likes the exotic, but he likes his own sovereignty better. And so he responds well to the intrusion of another culture who says, hey, I like the culture stuff. Let's let in some of the gods in their pantheon. But we also have to remember our own Egyptian identity. And so for a period of two dynasties, the 19th and 20th dynasties, the pharaohs loved to call themselves things like beloved of Set or I am Set's man, or even the pharaoh whose name I cheer, Setnok, Set is mighty. But after a while, things go back to the strong central government, which then later falls to um, foreign influence. And Set was Mm -hmm. almost forgotten in the world entirely up until the time of the Roman Empire, when in fact, sorcerers discovered Set in droves. This god that had been completely forgotten, totally demonized, we don't like him anymore, immediately starts peering in magical formula. Mm-hmm. And usually magical formula connected with that idea of individual sovereignty. So it blossoms out again, and then ends with the coming of Christianity. Set can pretty well be seen to have vanished, oh, maybe about the year 300 A.D. And it wasn't till much later, till after discoveries of the Ptolemaic Egypt, that people once again began interacting with Set. And it began almost entirely in a magical way. Of course, then the huge 
you know, amazing, over-the-top hitting the switch on this was in 1975 when Michael Aquino invoked that. And a god which had been silent for years speaks again. Suddenly he has his temple, mm-hmm. there's a core of people that work with the idea, and a vaster group of people that are familiar with the idea. However, we have to notice one thing. When Set shows up, it's usually in times of a certain amount of geopolitical or environmental stress. This shows up and works well as a god when, in fact, you can't look to Horus to save you anymore. Mm-hmm. When in fact, you have to be looking for your own resources. But you don't look for your own resources by yourself. You're not becoming a prepper hiding somewhere in Montana. It's like, no, I have mm-hmm. to, in fact, look to my own resources economically, magically, philosophically, and I want to have people to share civilization with. So mm-hmm. once again, Set shows up. Um, Set is the one God that will teach you chaos is inevitable. He is not the person that inflicts chaos on you, but he is the person that tells you you better laugh at it when it shows up. So maybe those, those stress points, those times at which Set appears, are really points of opportunity. Well, there always have been a time when civilization has flourished and then in some ways receded. I think that it may be a time now where, yes, it is a time of, of opportunity. Uh, the lots of aspects of the older order of the world are dissolving. That's why a lot of people in America, of course, are terrified. Right? They look around and say, hey, the world does not make sense to me. The Sedian would actually assume, well, the world doesn't make sense. You're the one that brings sense to the world. You're the one that's responsible for the creation of meaning. Mm-hmm. But that would not be a popular idea. Popular ideas would be, hey, let's go back to this imagined past that was never there to begin with. So, and another thing that you mentioned is uh, uh, the strong central government that was created by the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. That, that eventually leads to their fall, eventually, because then they can be taken over. And that's a recurring theme. They, they, some, some people made the same point about uh, Germania, the Germanic tribes under a chieftain sort of society, you know, for, for years. The Romans couldn't make any headway on them because a, a decentralized chieftain system like that can actually be uh, stronger against a foreign invader um, because if, if you have a centralized government, well, the invader, they, they know where to go. They just go right to the central government, take over, you know, topple that leader, and bam, they've got the, the in- infrastructure under control. Um, and, and a similar point has been made about, um, like, Ireland under the chieftains. Like, the British Empire tried for, like, um, you know, centuries to try and conquer Ireland. They couldn't do, it, couldn't do it until, like, Ireland started to centralize. You know, pretty soon after that, well, the English came in and, you know, the rest of history, as they say. And my point in all this is, one, that these historical patterns repeat themselves to some extent. And the other thing is that during these periods of, um, of instability and transition, they can actually be opportunities for something else. And in the case of America right now, it's hard to imagine, oh, it's a foreign invader, but it could mean, well, maybe the whole system is just going to fall apart and something better is going to, you know, arise up in its place. Well, at these, time, these times of great chaos, there are always times of great opportunity. And the most important thing to, to realize is that the way you can take advantage of opportunity is inner calmness. You know, if you're the person who is not buffeted by the storm, you mm-hmm. can make the better decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that is a big appeal a lot of times to study in philosophy. And I think, and I noticed, for example, uh, just in the structure of the temple set itself, 
it's the only group, a cult group I know of, where the membership, the owning membership, the priesthood, can get rid of the high priest. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're really badly put together for a cult because we can mm-hmm. move our way out of anything. Um, I think that that's... It's, it, it's really easy to leave it. It's really easy to leave. <laughs> it's really easy to leave. It's harder to get back young. Um, <laughs> yeah, all, all those letters aren't you know, sent to me for some reason. But um, <laughs> it, um, it does not, you know, it does not say we're going to offer you a new lifestyle. It just says we're going to offer you a philosophy and you can become calm. But now the oldest meaning of the name said, its original Egyptian form of sutech, probably means the stabilizer. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes these different uh-huh. parts of yourself and you can work with these ideas to become stable. And the only kind of stability that works in the world is a dynamic stability, a dynamic balance. It's not like I want to be stable by just freezing and saying, okay, I'm perfect right now. It actually becoming, well, I have to deal with my own becoming and make that a stream that is neither against the world, so the world doesn't have to try to rub me out, doesn't go with the world, so I'm all with it, but interacts in the world in the way I choose for it to interact. Now, over the years, I've noticed that our founder, Dr. Quino, has a great fondness for the figure of Captain Nemo. In many ways, Captain Nemo is the perfect black magician. He controls mm-hmm. his own environment, yet he is free to move anywhere, interact with the world any way that he wants to, and chooses to use his power to help the helpless, not because mm-hmm. he is a great altruist, but because he's decided, I love life, therefore I'm going to help the life of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do this by being self-sufficient, yet mobile, self-sufficient, yet deeply intertwined in the world, on my own terms. And the watchword of the temple, the Egyptian verb kafir, which means I have come into being, is all about being interactive with the world on your own terms. I have a phrase I remembered from when I was just a first degree in the temple. When I heard Dr. Quino explain kafir, he says, it's becoming more the constant in the equation and everything else becomes the variable. And that can mean things politically, philosophically, artistically, emotionally. But it's a very simple principle. It's a simple principle of I am choosing a life dedicated to improving me, dedicated to my happiness, dedicated to the people that I love. And then beyond that, I am open to anything. Mm -hmm. I will interact with the world any way I want. I will not force the world to agree with me politically. I will not force the world to be frightened of me. I will not be cowered by the world. If you know who you are, the chance to play increases. And the most important thing you can probably say is, I enjoy playing the game of life because I enjoy being me. So I feel like this might relate a little bit. This is another line that I found out of uh, the books that um, you equate Seth's cutting up of Osiris with William S. Burroughs' theory of cutoffs. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and, and uh, how, how William S. Burroughs might have been an influence for you? Well, Burroughs was a, was a big influence. Uh, it was funny as you say that. I was, I was actually staring at the library in my office and could see about seven Burroughs titles when you mentioned Uncle Bill's name. Nice. Burroughs became aware that human beings are constantly in a stream of messages. In fact, the average human reads 
50,000 words a day. That's a staggering amount of stuff. And most of the stuff you read was on Facebook or maybe it was even a sign on the highway. It's flowing into you for purposes of control. Now, some control is good. I am always glad when a red light tells me to stop. That's good control. But a lot of control is not good for me. And this is not a conspiracy thinking thing. I don't want you to think, it, oh, there's a big controller out there controlling us. No, most control is very random. But think about this. Every single person that's listening to this wonderful little interview tonight, if I just say something as simple as, ba-da-ba-ba-ba, I can invoke the, the figure of McDonald's in their brain. McDonald's is renting their brain. Now, it's not for some deep, serious reason. It's so you'll go and buy the Big Mac or the Egg McMuffin. But Burroughs said, let's start playing with the signals that are coming in. Uh, particularly, he discovered, just taking advertisements, fiction, political speeches, literally cutting them up and reassembling the pieces and seeing the messages that come out. It's a really, really fun thing to do. There's a great book I would highly recommend called The Magical Universe of William S. Burroughs. It's by a guy named Matthew Levy Stevens. deals with Burroughs' magical career. Anyone that checks out the amount of control in the world will be horrified. You can even take someone who's a new student of meditation. I remember a friend who was just learning how to do mantra meditation. And the first night she called me and says, I start with this beautiful mantra in, in Sanskrit, but it turns into a Pepsi commercial. That is a truly, truly sad thing. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and it's true. There's so much in us that's not of us. The text of another is an affront to the self. But if you can take that Pepsi commercial and redirect it, toward your own ends? Have you not enforced your will upon it and made it your own? Yeah, here's the thing. All of the techniques of control, all will also work for you. Yeah. All the things in conventional religion, chanting, um, fasting, staring at a bright light, whatever, you can make work for you. You do not have to reinvent the spiritual or magical universe. There are literally thousands of techniques worked out for thousands of years. You just have to ask the question, what was this made to do? And then, what do I want to do with it? And once you do that, it's also a tremendous amount of fun. <laughs> so, so my big story about cut-ups is when I was in college in the early 90s, I had a, a, a poetry class, and we had to write a poem every week and, and come read it, and the teacher would critique it, and the other students would critique it. And one time, I decided to do a cut-up. I was reading Burroughs and stuff at the time. So I did a cut-up. I brought it to class. I read it. And after I was done, the teacher said, is this a cut-up? <laughs> it's like he knew. I didn't think people would be able to, to recognize that. Well, I mean, Burroughs was correct to figure out literally everything we say are cut-ups anyway, and that we're using the words that we are swimming in or maybe drowning in to, to formulate their own ways. Um, there's a nice book of cut-up art coming out soon called The Junk Merchants 2. Um, that uh, it would be worth looking out for people that, that want to see that. But if people are unfamiliar with cut-ups, just go over to your computer and put in Burroughs Cut-Up and do a website, web search, and you will find tools that will help you start playing with that tonight. And it can boost a lot of really fun things. Absolutely. Another 
point that you make in the book set, you say in reference to Setiums, our mission is not the mission of neo-paganism, reconstructionism. So could you talk a little bit more about that as far as like the difference between Setianism and neo-paganism? Well, neo-pagans are people who like things from the past that suggest to them liveliness or play and usually want to see it either in the form of tradition or at least as much tradition as they want to play with as long as it doesn't get too serious. Uh, I have no desire to recreate ancient different religions. Uh, for example, I don't want to have to shave my body four times a day for ritual purity. Uh, no, that's, that's not going to work for me. Um, the Egyptians did things in their culture that are meaningful for them. We do not have to do things slavishly. We just have to look and say, what does that idea mean? I'll give you a really simple example. I wrote a book on the magical pyrite called The Seven Faces of Darkness. Now, because I am someone who loves animals, hmm. loves animals dearly, I did not write in some of the original spells. They said to do things like write this on the skin of a donkey or use the skull of an ass. What I did do is write, you would have to find the cultural equivalent now. Mm -hmm. For example, if you really want to write a spell on the skin of something that's really tough, uh, find a biker you can beat up and take his jacket. And if you walk away from that, man, you got your parchment right there. Um, but we don't, have to, we don't have to in any way try to idolize the past. The secret is taking the spiritual and philosophical ideas from the past that we like, that we can test logically mm -hmm. in our own minds, and then mate them with modern technology. As long as you become your own master, technology is not the enemy. Technology is power. Now, if you're not the master, technology is the first thing that will take you over, just because it's so very powerful. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that book, Two Seven Faces. I think that's uh, one of my favorites, and I think there's some really powerful magic in that. Over the years, that one actually has, has, has stood out pretty well. I'm, I'm always finding people in kind of the oddest of places that uh, have read that and have um, good remarks about that for me. Definitely a good one. Highly, highly recommend it. Um, I want to ask you about another book that you wrote that might not be quite as out there. They're called The Book of the Hebsed. And one of my favorite lines from that is you say, change the nature of perception and you can solve the dilemma of perfectibility. So I feel in one sense that a lot of what we've been talking about this evening can already be distilled to that. But could you give a little uh, elaboration on that? Well, I, could, I didn't write the Book of the Hebsed. I received it. Seth wrote that one. But okay. <laughs> uh, I think what he meant by that is we have ideas about what it is to be perfect, and no human can match those ideas. We are imperfect all the time. But what if we came to see ourselves as a divine, progressively evolving entity that is perfect in the way that it's evolving? You know, there's a lot of talk. You know, there's like two different ideas in the world about uh, self-affirmation. There's a people say, hey, I'm great, I'm perfect, I'm this. Or these people are like, no, I'm terrible, I'm awful. What if your perfection is becoming aware all the time of yourself as a living, self-evolving individual? Because that's what you're meant to be. And that's much more interesting than being a god. Gods are fixed and done, and they're not, nothing is happening anymore. They're like an app. You can, you, know, you can run them like a program. And so I think that's the biggest nature it also says in the book of the Hebsed, changing perception is the great work. If you learn to see 
both yourself and the cosmos in ever-improving forms, you live in a much better world. It may sometimes be a terrifying world or a tough world, but it's much better. And we all see that in a really simple way, right? We're driving to work on Monday morning and traffic is horrible. Driving home Friday afternoon, traffic suddenly can become fun. Hey, I can move my car around. This is, this is lots of fun. I'm heading home. Traffic hasn't changed. You've changed. But here's what a magician knows. If you go with this new feeling, actual things begin to change in the outside world. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate beauty of study and magic is that the simple description of making a change in the subjective universe so that a proportional change happens in the objective universe. A lot of this simply comes through perception. See the world better, see yourself better. And you can do that in all kinds of ways, whether it's being more alert, more alert whether it's going to places of great physical beauty, whether it's putting good books in your head. All these things can make your perception better. So being aware of, of your movement through the universe um, and that whole concept, is, for, for some reason I want to say this is very similar to, uh, this reminds me of some of the things that um, Dr. Aquino said in, in Mindstar about the nature of the soul um, being, uh, being a, a movement through the universe. And everything he said about that, you know, really inspiring. A lot of people, I think, get pulled down um, by their worry about the future or dread about the future, about what's going to happen, about will I be successful, will I be able to overcome this, you know. Or they get worried that the same thing, that there's always the same outcome. And the more they get worried about the same outcome, the more they create the same outcome. Do you have any advice um, for how people can combat that fear? The biggest way I would say to combat that fear is find moments where it's just you and the universe and you can take a good deep breath. On nights, you can see the starry sky. I recommend, and if you're in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, I recommend going outside and finding the Big Dipper. The constellation is called the Thigh of Set. Mm-hmm. And look it up there and think, why is this in the center? Because for the ancient Egyptians, the night sky is always turning always moving, always changing, and yet it's set sky that moves it, that moves the night sky. And you who can appreciate this fact, looking at those seven stars and their beautiful geometric form, you too are the person moving your whole universe. And just return to that simple truth from time to time before you're worried about, hey, what's the rent like next month? And just that simple moment, that catching of the breath, that moment of finding inner calm can make huge changes. You start with some very simple things like that and actually utterly alter your life. We forget this because it always comes down to, as we said before, there are lies in the world that make us want to forget. But there are truths in you that make you want to remember. Wow, excellent. Very, very heavy and deep and thoughtful stuff. Well, Don, I want to thank you for all the uh, wonderful things that you're putting out there into the universe um, and, and ask, do you have any, any final, final words or thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Um, even though in the world right now things seem particularly horrific, this too will pass. Never confuse a Halloween carnival with the truth of the night sky afterward. Things may look scary now, You can even laugh at some of them. They will pass. It is what is within you that is immortal and calm 
and likened to a star. Excellent. With that, uh, thank you, Don Webb, and keep fighting the good fight, and we will continue to look for your awesome works in the universe. Thank you so much, Paul. Well, thank you for listening to another installment of Davonosophy 2.0, the only podcast exploring the congruence of liberty and the left-hand path. For more information, visit our website at www.daemonosophy.com. Follow our tweets at airbeth underscore trans. Or join the discussion on Facebook at the Daemonosophy Group. Until next time. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thank you.